Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled Understanding Cafeteria Plans. Before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Today's presenter is Marilyn A. Monahan, who is the owner of the Monahan Law Office in Marina Del Rey, California. Marilyn focuses her practice on advising employees and consultants on compliance with employee benefit and insurance laws, including ACA, ERISA, HIPAA, and COBRA. So Marilyn, how are you this morning? I'm good, Natalie. How are you today? I'm good, thank you for asking. Well, I'm glad to be here with everyone today. I wanted to add a couple of reminders, a couple of housekeeping matters. If you would like California CE credit, please make certain that you provide your insurance license number. I think we asked for that as part of the registration process. Also, you must participate in the entire webinar and you must participate in all three polls that we're offering those so throughout the course of the webinar there'll be three different polls and you must participate in those in order to get ce credits so let's get started with understanding cafeteria plans and by the way we will provide you with a copy of the slides after the presentation so what we're going to talk today about is how you create and administer a cafeteria plan, starting off with what is a cafeteria plan. And then we're going to talk about some of the tax advantages of what they are. And then we're going to talk about how you actually administer the plan, setting it up and then administering it once it is set up. We're going to start with an overview and then we're going to take a deeper dive into some of the aspects of administration particularly focusing on those areas that I get a lot of questions on or I see a lot of confusion over. We're also going to identify qualified benefits and the types of different options that you can offer through a cafeteria plan, how you might structure that plan. And then a big part of the program is gonna be talking about mid-year election changes. Once you elect as an employee to participate in a cafeteria plan, that election is irrevocable for the entire 12 month plan year, unless you have a qualifying status change. And there's always lots of confusion around about what is a qualifying status change. Um, confusion that employees have, employers have, TPAs have, brokers have. So we're gonna walk you through what the qualified status changes are, when they might apply, and give you some examples of situations in which employees are allowed to or not allowed to make changes mid-year. We're gonna talk about some compliance tips and traps. I've identified some resources. And I'm also um, want to mention that this program was designed uh, for general knowledge about cafeteria plans. In the COVID-19 era, Congress has passed some legislation and the IRS has issued some guidance that has allowed some flexibility in administering cafeteria plans for short periods of time, the 2020 or the 20, uh, 2021 plan years. Um, I will identify where some of those issues are, but the program wasn't designed to be an entire program on COVID-19 changes. We actually discussed how the new legislation passed by Congress affects cafeteria plans in the legal update we did last week. So it's outlined there, but if I have some time, I'll go over at the end kind of a highlight 
of some of the things you can do in the short term to change up some of the uh, standard rules for cafeteria plants. So with that in mind, let's get going. So creating and administering a cafeteria plan. And you know, this is one area where I do think um, a lot of people have a very good understanding of what cafeteria plans are and what they're all about, and other people don't have a very good understanding of what they are and they aren't are all about. Many people take them for granted. Many people don't even necessarily and uh, understand that they have a cafeteria plan. It's not uncommon for me to get a new um, employer client in and I'll start talking to them about their benefits and I will say to them, do you offer a cafeteria plan? And they might say no. And then I'll say to them, do you allow your employees to pay their uh, benefits, their health coverage pre-tax? And they'll say, well, yes, of course, that's a cafeteria plan. So they, some people have been in the business so long that they just uh, set these arrangements up and don't really uh, focus too much on um, the nuts and bolts of how we got there, what allows them to do this and how they have to, uh, follow up with them. So we're going to talk through some of those steps so that you have a better understanding of um, where the rules come from and what you have to do to actually implement them. So what is a cafeteria plan? Under Internal Revenue Code Service Rules, and it's the IRS that administers cafeteria plans, or that I should say regulates cafeteria plans, because they are they exist as a creature of the Internal Revenue Code. So this whole topic today is primarily of interest to the IRS if you got it if you get it wrong or if you get it right so according to IRS rules a cafeteria plan is created when an employer offers employees a choice between a permitted taxable benefit such as cash and at least one qualified benefit and I'll identify the qualified benefits in a couple of slides so here's an example this classic one is, um, and the one most employers have in place, is paying for health coverage pre-tax. So if employees are given the option to either receive their full salary and waive the group health coverage, and therefore they receive unreduced salary, a taxable benefit, or reduce their salary to pay for health coverage, a qualified benefit on a pre-tax basis, that's a cafeteria plan. They can have a taxable benefit or pay for a pre-tax, pay for, or have at least one qualified benefit. So to put this in um, more basic terms, the employees of Alpha Corporation must contribute $100 per month for health coverage. Joy, Joe has a choice of either $4,000 per month taxable salary or $3,900 per month taxable salary and health coverage. That's a cafeteria plan. That specific option of the being able to pay for your health coverage pre-tax is sometimes referred to in the business as a premium conversion option, a premium only plan, or a POP plan. If you hear people talk about that, they're talking about a, uh, one option that they can offer through a cafeteria plan. And sometimes it's the only option employers offer, which is absolutely fine. It is the most common one and it is the one, um, and it does provide benefits to both the employee and the employer. So I mentioned that cafeteria plans are um, regulated by the Internal Revenue Service, and that is because they are a creature of the Internal Revenue Code, specifically Section 125 of the Internal Revenue Code. And that's why you sometimes hear them referred to as Section 125 plans. It's all the same thing, a cafeteria plan or a Section 125 plan. And the key advantage to having a uh, Section 125 plan are the tax advantages. 
And there are tax advantages to both the employee and to the employer. And I'll use an example to put it in very simple terms of the tax advantages that will be experienced. Once again, we're dealing with Alpha Corporation. Alpha offers full-time employees health insurance and a cafeteria plan so that employees can pay their share of the health premiums pre-tax. Health premium is $500 per month for employee-only coverage. Alpha pays $400 a month and the employee pays $100 a month or $1,200 per year. Because of the cafeteria plan, the employee reduces his or her taxable income by $1,200. At the same time, Alpha pays employment taxes on $1,200 less in taxable income. So that's where the key tax benefits come from for offering a cafeteria plan. Now, what are some of the qualified benefits that you could offer through a cafeteria plan? Well, the premium only plan option or the POP option that I earlier described. Uh, accident and health benefits, health flexible spending accounts, a health FSA. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail later on because it's a popular option and there's some unique um, uh, administrative uh, rules with regard to health FSAs. A dependent care spending account, also referred to as a dependent care FSA or a DCAP. We'll also take some time talking about those separately because again, there are some unique rules related to DCAPs. Adoption assistance, pre-tax health savings account contributions, HSA contributions for those who are enrolled in a high deductible health plan. Also group term life insurance coverage in an amount that is less than or equal to the $50,000 excludable from gross income under Internal Revenue Code Section 79A. And I will go through some plan design options later to give you an idea about how you might structure these benefits. So those are some of the qualified benefits you can offer through a cafeteria plan. Now, what I mentioned, we have to do some polls. So um, Natalie, here's our first poll question. Will you please launch the poll? So all of you um, have an opportunity to um, answer these poll questions. How many, and the poll is open now. How many of your clients have an up-to-date written cafeteria plan document? First choice, all of them. Second choice, most of them. Third choice, some of them. Fourth choice, none of them. And what I see very often from an administrative perspective is people have a cafeteria plan document um, or had one at one time, but maybe they put it way in the back of a file cabinet or buried it on their hard drive somewhere and no one can find it anymore. Um, or maybe they put one in place 15 years ago, but no one's looked at it since. Um, maybe they even have one that they just got from their TPA this year, but they didn't proof it before they put it in place and they didn't make sure it met their needs. So this is one of the um, items that um, should be reviewed and updated periodically to make certain that it remains consistent with the law as well as consistent with uh, the employer's current plan options and uh, cafeteria plan design. So let's close out the poll, Natalie, please. And let's see how people have voted. And can you share those poll results? So it looks like uh, some of them is the most common response followed by most of them. Um, that doesn't surprise me. So um, thank you very much for participating in that and we will move forward with the presentation. Okay, 
administering the cafeteria plan. So what we're going to do is start with an overview, and then I'm going to take a deeper dive on some of the specific elements of this overview. So the first thing I want to tell you is that you must have a written cafeteria plan document. And the reason why a written cafeteria plan document is important is because the regulations say you have to have one, and the statute, Section 125, says you have to have one. And if you don't have a written cafeteria plan document or you don't follow some of these other administrative rules I'm going to talk about, if the IRS came in to audit you, they could theoretically say, ah, you haven't followed the rules. We're going to take away all the tax benefits that otherwise would be available to you under the cafeteria plan. So that's why you want to have it. You want to update it as necessary in order to ensure that it stays up to date with current law as well as to make sure it takes it's updated to uh, comply with your current needs as an employer. You can amend the cafeteria plan uh, document with from time to time. You can even amend it in the midst of a planned year. However, if you do amend it, um, the amendments must take place, must be prospective only. So if you want an amendment to take effect on January 1, you'd have to uh, adopt it, write it up and adopt it prior to January 1. And by the way, for my examples, as we go through this program here today, we're going to assume a calendar year cafeteria plan, January 1 through December 31, just makes it easier for discussion purposes. Although you do not have to have your calendar uh, cafeteria plan plan year follow on a calendar year basis. It can be an off year basis, particularly if your um, renewals, your health plan renewals are off year on a fiscal year basis. Another important point to keep in mind is only common law employees and former employees of the employer may participate. That includes laid off and retired employees. Independent contractors are not common law employees and they cannot participate. Also, and this is important and I do get questions on this, sole proprietors, partners, directors who are not also employees, and 2% shareholders of an S corporation are not considered employees and they cannot participate in the cafeteria plan. Employee elections to participate in the cafeteria plan must be made before the first day of the plan year. So if the plan year starts January 1, they have to make their election for the plan year prior to January 1. As I mentioned, and we'll talk about it a couple of different times during this hour long presentation, Elections are irrevocable for the planned year. Mid-year election changes are only permitted if both IRS regulations, which I will walk you through, permit it, and the cafeteria plan document allows for it. In theory, the cafeteria plan document could say, we're not going to allow any mid-year election changes, even if the IRS regulations would otherwise permit them. Now, very few cafeteria plan documents actually say that, but they could. And if they, if the cafeteria plan document did say that, you couldn't allow any mid-year election plan changes. Um, but most of them do uh, are uh, do parallel the IRS regulations. But technically, it has to be both the IRS regulations and the cafeteria plan document have to allow for it. The cafeteria plan must have a plan year, which is 12 consecutive months long. So again, the calendar year example, January 1 through December 31. You can have a short plan year periodically in some certain circumstances, but only if it's adopted for a valid business purpose. 
So this might be, this might happen, for example, if you're changing up your planned year for your health coverage. Um, you're switching from a calendar year to have it start on December 1 instead of January 1, in which case you might want to adjust your cafeteria plan to parallel that. Or you've got a merger and acquisition and you might want to adjust your cafeteria plan to coordinate the plans of the two different companies that are being merged. Administration, this is important. You must administer the plan according to plan terms. You must follow the rules. And you can't make exceptions for employees even if you want to make an exception for an employee. And the most common example I get of this is an employee who wants to make a mid-year status change, but it doesn't qualify under the IRS rules. You cannot permit that. And I've got some examples of that later on. Now, an interesting dynamic is that cafeteria plans are not subject to ERISA. ERISA, otherwise known as the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, is a federal law that governs employer-sponsored health and welfare and retirement plans um, in the private sector. It is administered by the Federal Department of Labor. A cafeteria plan is not subject to ERISA. A cafeteria plan is a creature, as I said, of the Internal Revenue Code, not and falls under the jurisdiction of the IRS, not the Department of Labor. So for example, you wouldn't typically include a cafeteria plan that just contained a premium conversion option in your ERISA wrap document. However, if you offer a health FSA as part of your cafeteria plan, as one of the options under the cafeteria plan, the health FSA is a group health plan. A group health plan satisfies ERISA's definition. So the health FSA component is subject to ERISA even though the other parts of the cafeteria plan are not. So for that health FSA component, you have, to you have to follow the ERISA rules. You might have to include that health FSA component in your wrap plan document. That might be one option. Um, but the, the other parts of the, cap of the cafeteria plan are not subject to ERISA. And I finally want to mention that cafeteria plans are subject to non-discrimination rules and testing. Non-discrimination rules and testing generally mean that you can't design or operate your plan so that it favors the highly compensated employees within your company. It has to treat everyone uh, pretty much the same so that the rank and file employees and the highly compensated employees are entitled in general to the same range of benefits and the same contributions and so forth um, in order to satisfy the non-discrimination testing rules. So with that overview in mind, let's take a deeper dive on some of these administrative elements of uh, the cafeteria plan rules and regulations. So I mentioned you have to have a written cafeteria plan document. What are some of the things that you have to include in your written cafeteria plan document? Well, it's all of the elements outlined in the IRS regulations, and those would include specifically identifying the plan year. This is a saying something like this is the calendar year. Uh, the plan year runs for 12 months from January 1 through December 31. You'd have to outline participant eligibility, um, participation requirements and eligibility requirements. Who is eligible to participate in the cafeteria plan and who is not eligible to participate in the cafeteria plan. Uh, participant election requirements, when they have to make elections and the methodologies that you would use to make elections. 
you have to outline the employer and the employee contribution rules, including any maximum amount of employer and employee contributions. You'd have to provide a description of benefits and periods of coverage. So for example, I often see, I shouldn't say often, but I do see sometimes um, uh, employers that get their cafeteria plan documents from their TPAs, which is very common. It's a service many TPAs provide, but they don't always proofread them after they get them. And I will see employers that have a cafeteria plan document that talks about making HSA contributions, even though the employer doesn't have a high deductible health plan. So you can ask the TPA, remove that section to make certain that that cafeteria plan document accurately reflects the benefits you're actually offering to employees. The plan document must be adopted and effective on or before the first day of the plan year. So for calendar year plan before January 1. Mid-year amendments to the plan document, if they're made, must be also in writing and adopted, but they, and they must be prospective only. And component benefits, the various benefit options you offer under the cafeteria plan may be subject to other documentation requirements. For example, there are separate rules for health FSAs and DCAPs, additional terms and conditions you have to add in to ensure that those elements of the cafeteria plan are fully compliant. Elections. So as I stated, employee elections must be made before the first day of the plan year. Electronic elections are acceptable. You can make electronic elections. Electro elections are irrevocable. Uh, what I want to emphasize on this particular slide with regard to that comment I've made a couple of times now is what's very useful is communicate during open enrollment that um, elections are irrevocable. So this might be during your open enrollment meetings, whether they're in person or via Zoom. This might be uh, in the benefits summary you hand out. This might be on the election form itself, whether it's on paper or electronic, to remind people that once they make these elections, they're committed to them. It's a very common thing. I'm sure many of you have seen this. You get to, down toward the end of the year as an employee comes into HR and says, hey, I just noticed you're taking money out of my account for uh, my paycheck for a DCAP contribution. I don't even have any kids. Um, they checked a box on their election form and didn't realize that they shouldn't have checked that box or um, they uh, you know changed their mind about their coverage or they don't use up all their health fsa uh, contributions by the end of the year and suddenly they want to drop them toward the end of the year those kinds of things happen so communicate is important communication is important so people understand the consequences of the choices that they're making at the beginning of the year which can sometimes be difficult to anticipate, specifically with regard to the health FSA and DCAPs, but they do have that obligation. Default elections are permitted under IRS rules. This is a situation where an election for a prior year is deemed to be continued for every succeeding plan year unless changed. In all of these cases, document, document, document. And the reason for that is employees do forget what they elected or they change their minds or they tell you they've changed their minds and you need to be able to produce that paper trail where you can say no no you did check that box um, and this is what you intended to do and we can or cannot unwind it now depending on facts and circumstances so documentation you are taking money out of someone's paycheck and putting it aside for a certain purpose and everyone wants to be clear that that is the choice that they made and that is why you are um, uh, doing what you're doing. 
non-discrimination testing. Uh, I'm taking a deeper dive on this, but still only in very, very summary fashion. Non-discrimination testing is a complex topic. It uh, is worthy of a uh, lengthy webinar on its own. Um, but it is important to know that cafeteria plans are subject to non-discrimination rules and testing under both section 125, as well as regulations issued by the IRS uh, 1.125-7 implementing uh, the non-discrimination rules in section 125. In addition to the rules that apply to the cafeteria plan, there might be there may be separate non-discrimination rules that apply to individual components offered under the cafeteria plan. For example, there's a second set of, or a separate set of non-discrimination rules that apply just to the health FSA. And there's another set of non-discrimination rules that apply just to the DCAP. The general concept under the section 125 cafeteria plan non-discrimination rules is that a cafeteria plan may not dis discriminate in favor of what they call highly compensated individuals that is a defined term as to eligibility to participate uh, for that plan year. So for example, you couldn't set up a cafeteria plan that is only available to highly compensated individuals and is not available to any of the rank and file employees. In addition, a cafeteria plan must not discriminate in favor of highly compensated participants as to contributions and benefits for a plan year. So you could not have very, very generous contribution terms for highly compensated employees and less generous contribution terms for uh, rank and file employees. Uh, and key employee contributions cannot exceed 25% of co total contributions to the plan. And there's a series of tests that you can put the plan through to determine whether or not it complies. Non-discrimination testing must be performed as of the last day of the plan year. So, Section 125 cafeteria plans do not exist in a vacuum. There are other employee benefit plans and rules that you've come across and are familiar with. And I thought it would be helpful to outline on this slide just exactly how those other laws work together with the cafeteria plan rules. Now, I did mention to you earlier that the cafeteria plan is not subject to ERISA um, as your health plan is, um, your dental plan is, your vision plan is, and your life plan is but some of the component benefits offered through the cafeteria plan may be, such as group health, life, short and long-term disability. If the employer ha is, uh, has to file a Form 5500, um, the cafeteria plan is not included in the Form 5500, but component benefits may be, such as group health, life, STD, and LTD. HIPAA, specifically the HIPAA privacy and security rules, the cafeteria plan is not subject to the HIPAA privacy uh, and security rules, but the component benefits, particularly the group health and the group FSA, the health FSA, are subject to um, the HIPAA privacy and security rules. Question I get has to do with domestic partners. The value of benefits provided to domestic partners is for federal income tax purposes imputed to the employee. That means the value of benefits provided to the domestic partner are included for federal income tax purposes in the gross income of the employee. The exception to that is if the 
domestic partner qualifies as a dependent under Section 152 of the Internal Revenue Code. Now, how do you treat this for state tax purposes? That could vary depending on state law. So for example, in California, um, you, a registered domestic partner, um, the value of benefits provided to a registered domestic partner is not included in the employee's income for state income tax purposes, whether or not that registered domestic partner qualifies as a dependent under Section 152. But the federal rules would still be that the registered domestic partner, the value of that person's coverage would be included in the employee's gross income for federal income tax purposes. So it does get a little compl complicated uh, with regard to domestic partners. A compliance tip that I want to offer up, um, similar to the tips and traps I'm going to talk about later on, is make sure that you coordinate cafeteria plan eligibility language with your ERISA RAP documents, your ACA compliance requirements, your employee handbook, and so forth. Very often, all of these documents are prepared by different parties. Your ERISA wraps might be prepared by um, one vendor, uh, one service provider, your benefits lawyer. Your employee handbook might be prepared by your employment lawyer and so forth. And that might mean that differences in plan terms creep in. So if you want cafeteria plan eligibility to match health plan eligibility, you need to make certain that the language lines up in all of the documents. In employee handbooks, by the way, um, I always recommend that since they are not part of the written cafeteria plan document, they are not part of the written ERISA plan documentation, you can include some eligibility language in there if you want, but you should always add a disclaimer that ultimately the written plan documentation controls if there's a discrepancy. So let's talk about some plan design options. Um, that you can offer through your uh, cafeteria plan. So I've given the example already of the POP only, the premium conversion only option. Employees of Alpha, Alpha Corporation must contribute $100 a month for PPO health coverage. Joe therefore has a choice of either $4,000 a month of taxable salary um, if he waives his coverage or he takes the coverage and he uh, contributes $100 a month pre-tax toward the coverage and he receives $3,900 per month in taxable salary. Another example is a POP plus a pre-tax HSA contributions. In this case, Alpha Corp offers its, its employees an HDHP or a high deductible health plan at a cost to the employee of $100 per month. Employees can also contribute their own funds to an HSA. Debbie enrolls in the HDHP and elects to contribute $100 per month pre-tax to her HSA. Uh, an example of a POP plus a health FSA is for 2021, Alpha offers a PPO health plan at a cost to employees of $120 per month for self-only coverage. And employees can also salary reduce up to $100 a month toward a health FSA. Debbie enrolls in the PPO and elects to contribute $100 a month to the health FSA. Another example is where the employer creates flex credits. In this case, for 2021, Alpha offers a PPO health plan at a cost to employees of $120 a month for self-only coverage, a health FSA, and flex credits of $100 a month toward the health FSA for those employees who enroll in the PPO. 
Debbie enrolls in the PPO, elects the flex credits, and elects to salary reduce an additional $100 a month to the health FSA. So what is a health FSA? Well, I pulled this definition off the healthcare.gov uh, website because I thought it was fairly straightforward. A flexible spending account is a special account you put money into that you use to pay for certain out-of-pocket healthcare costs. You don't pay taxes on this money. This means you'll save the amount equal to the taxes you would have paid on the money you set aside. Employers may make contributions to your FSA, but aren't required to. So a few pointers there, both employers and employees may contribute to the health FSA, but employers are not obligated to do so. There is an annual limit on employee contributions. This adjusts each year for 2021. Employees cannot contribute more than 2,750 under standard cafeteria plan rules. Neither employee nor employer contributions are included in the employee's taxable income. In addition, reimbursements for qualified medical expenses are not taxable. Employer contributions are tax deductible by the employer. I talked earlier about the Section 125 non-discrimination rules. There is a separate set of non-discrimination rules under Section 1058 of the Internal Revenue Code that applies to the health FSA component of the cafeteria plan. Administering the health FSA. You may reimburse qualified medical expenses if they are for medical care for current or former employees, their spouses, dependents, and children under 27. Now, new for 2020, this came about as a result of the CARES Act, which was passed in response to the pandemic, um, but it's not limited to the pandemic. This is a new change that is permanent. Um, health FSAs can be designed so that in, uh, the health FSA can reimburse over-the-counter drugs or medicines used for medical care, as well as menstrual products without a prescription. So this is a change that you can make to your health FSA. Um, it may require a written cafeteria plan amendment to implement it, depends on how your cafeteria plan document is currently drafted. All claims that are submitted for reimbursement to a health FSA must be substantiated. Um, you can't just say, hey, I spent uh, 20 bucks on a copay, uh, give me 20 bucks. You have to provide documentation to the TPA or um, if it's administered internally, just internal staff in order to um, reimburse that $20 copay. Uh, you can set up the health FSA so that debit, credit, or stored value cards may be used um, to pay for qualified medical expenses. Now, the reimbursements under a health FSA are subject to a couple of rules, including the uniform coverage rules. So in our case where Debbie contributes $100 a month every month through, through the end of the plan year, if Debbie has contributed $100 a month in January and she has a medical expense in January that cost her $200 out of pocket, the employer has to reimburse that entire $200 amount. Um, even though Debbie won't be making contributions to cover it until another uh, later in the year. There's also the use it or lose it rule. Um, and basically this is the amounts that employees set aside um, or contribute to their health FSA must be used during the plan year uh, for expenses incurred during the plan year 
or they forfeit the funds. This is why advanced planning is important. They need to have some sense of what their out-of-pocket medical expenses must be in, during the year uh, or might be during the year so they know how much money to set aside so that they don't forfeit um, a large amount of money at the end of the year. Now, under standard cafeteria plan rules, plans are allowed to have a two and a half month grace period for claims. So in the calendar year example, this would mean they have up till March 15, if the plan has a grace period to allow employees to incur claims to be reimbursed with the prior year's expenses. This has been extended under COVID-19 for a short period of time under the um, CAA Act. Also, you can have a carryover of up to $550 of unused funds from one plan year to the next. And that amount is not counted against the maximum contribution limit for the next year. Um, that 500 used to be $500 last year, they uh, bumped it up to 550. They've also created some new rules, which we talked about last year under the CAA, uh, which extends both grace periods and carryovers. A plan can have a carryover or a grace period, and it can't have both. If you do have a carryover or a grace period, it can affect HSA eligibility in subsequent plan years. So you need to be cognizant of that. If you're trying to get your employees to migrate over into a high deductible health plan, having a carryover or a grace period could affect their eligibility for HSAs unless you design um, your plan accordingly. So that is something to keep back of your mind. A dependent care assistance program, also called a DCAP or a dependent care FSA, is a separate written plan of an employer for the exclusive benefits of employees to provide employees with dependent care assistance for qualifying individuals. And as always with the dependent care account, follow the rules just as you have to for the health FSA and the section 125 plan as a whole. Both employers and employees may contribute to the DCAP. Employers are not required to. The standard annual limit is on contributions is 5,000. That was changed for 2021 under um, the uh, ARPA Act to 10,500, uh, but uh, the standard amount will then revert to 5,000. Neither employer nor employee contributions are included in the employee's taxable income. Neither are reimbursements for qualified dependent care expenses. Section 129 of the Internal Revenue Code that allows you to have a dependent care spending account has its own set of non-discrimination rules. I will tell you that my experience is that DCAPs are more likely to fail non-discrimination testing than the other benefit because they're typically uh, or more likely to be taken advantage of by higher income individuals. Administering the DCAP, you may reimburse for dependent care assistance, meaning payment for or provision of those services, which if paid for by the employee would be considered employment related expenses, uh, must be incurred to enable the gainful employment of the employee and spouse, must be for the care of a qualifying individual, and must be incurred during the plan year. Again, Claims must be substantiated, debit, credit, or stored value cards uh, may be used. The uniform coverage rule does not apply here, but the use it or lose it forfeiture rule does apply. Um, you can have a two and a half month grace period for a DCAP under standard cafeteria plan rules, but no carryover 
However, those rules were mixed up a bit for the short term under um, the uh, CAA Act signed in December. HIPAA, ERISA, and COBRA generally do not apply to the DCAP. So we have another poll question. Uh, Natalie, if you'll launch this poll, please. Poll is now open. Most clients administer their flexible spending accounts internally or externally by a TPA. I think I know what the answer to this question is, and it's going to be externally by a TPA, but every once in a while you find an employer that uh, handles it internally. If you do handle it internally, do not forget that, HIPAA, that a health flexible spending account is subject to HIPAA, so all HIPAA privacy rules must be followed and the, the information you get in for claims and uh, medical care must be handled um, confidentially and consistent with the HIPAA privacy, privacy and security rules. So if you'll, Natalie, if you'll please close the poll, let's see what the answers are. And the results, yep, <laughs> that's what I thought. Mostly everyone is uh, externally by a TPA. It just can get too complicated to know what a qualifying health or dependent care expense is. Uh, and there's a lot of administrative burdens, so that's not uncommon. So let's move on to permitted election changes. So when can employees change their cafeteria plan elections in the middle of the cafeteria plan year? As I said at the beginning, you can only make a cafeteria plan election change in the middle of the plan year if the IRS regulations allow for it and the written cafeteria plan document also allows for it. Both have to happen. The law does not require cafeteria plans to allow all these status changes, but most do. And um, these are the six categories of election changes permitted, and I'm going to go through each of these one by one. So here's an example. Let's start with Alpha Corp has a calendar year plan. For 2021, Alpha, Alpha offers two qualified benefits through its cafeteria plan. An employer-sponsored PPO health plan for self-only coverage, Alpha pays 300 and employees pay 100, plus a health FSA, which employees can contribute up to $1,200 per year or $100 a month. On December 15, 2020, Debbie completes an election form electing coverage under the PPO health plan and electing to reduce her salary by $100 a month to pay for that health plan. She also elects to contribute $100 a month to the health FSA. In the middle of the plan year, on May 15, 2021, Debbie informs HR that she believes she can no longer afford the health coverage and wants to drop the coverage effective June 1, but she wants to contrib continue contributing to the health FSA. What should HR do? Well, deciding mid-year that you can't afford it anymore is not a qualifying status change. So in that event, the uh, HR department has to inform Debbie that she can't make the change. She must maintain the health coverage and continue to have $100 a month deducted from her pay um, in order to pay for the health coverage each month. That is, again, why communication is important so employees understand the consequences of their decisions. Now, one of the qualifying status change categories are HIPAA special enrollment rights. If someone has a special enrollment event, they can make a qualifying mid-year election change. A cafeteria plan may permit an employee to revoke an election for coverage under a group health plan mid-year and make a new election to correspond with these HIPAA special enrollment rights. 
And those are, let's say someone loses coverage under a group health plan or health insurance. The employee had previously waived the employer's coverage because they had this, this other plan. Um, and they've now lost eligibility for the other coverage or they've exhausted COBRA or their employer has stopped paying for their non-COBRA coverage and now they want to come in to their current employer's plan. Uh, com another very common example is an addition of a dependent through marriage, birth, adoption or placement for adoption. In that case, you have 30 days to enroll. So you have a baby, you want to add the baby to the plan. You have to notify the plan typically within 30 days. You get married, you want to add your spouse to the plan. You typically have to uh, notify the plan within 30 days. Or another special enrollment right is loss of eligibility for or gain premium assistance for Medicaid or CHIP. Now one interesting thing point here is if someone experiences one of these special enrollment rights, they do have the right to um, enroll in the plan. So let's say someone has a baby they have the right to enroll that baby in the plan. If your cafeteria plan document didn't allow an election change on this basis, you'd still have to allow the employee to enroll in the plan under HIPAA, but they just wouldn't be able to pay for it pre-tax. So let's have an example here. Debbie, who has been employed by Alpha for six months, has been on COBRA coverage from her previous place of employment. On May 15, 2020, Debbie informs HR that her COBRA coverage will end on May 31, and she wants to enroll in Alpha's plan effective June 1. What should HR do? If permitted by the cafeteria plan, allow Debbie to enroll and pay her premiums pre-taxed through the cafeteria plan. If not permitted by the cafeteria plan, which would be unusual, but it does sometimes happen, allow Debbie to enroll, but she must pay her premiums post-tax outside the cafeteria plan. Now, another category of special enroll of uh, qualifying status changes is what they call a change in status. Um, a change in status refers to a legal marital status, such as marriage, death of a spouse, divorce, legal separation, and annulment. Number of dependents, a change in that, such as through birth, death, adoption, or placement for adoption. A change in employment status with respect to the employee, the employee's spouse, or dependent, which could be a termination or commencement of employment, a strike or lockout. A commencement of or return from an unpaid leave of absence. So if someone goes on a, a CIFRA leave or an FMLA leave, um, they could change, make a mid-year election change if they wanted to. Um, as a result. Now, I probably shouldn't have used those examples because under CIFRA and FMLA, the employer must maintain the employee's coverage and continue to pay for benefits. So, um, but it would otherwise be um, uh, a basis for uh, election change under the cafeteria plan rules. Dependent ceases to satisfy or satisfy eligibility requirements such as a dependent uh, reaches age 26 and is no longer eligible for coverage, a residence address or adoption assistance. So let's use some change in status examples. On May 15, 2021, Debbie informs HR that she just married. She wants to enroll her new spouse as well as her son in the health plan. What should HR do? Allow Debbie to revo revoke her election for self-only coverage and elect family coverage effective June 1. Example two. Debbie has coverage for herself and her son. Debbie's son ages out of the plan. What should HR do? A revocation of Debbie's election for family coverage and a 
uh, mid-year election change to self-only coverage would be consistent with this change in status and should be allowed. Another basis for a qualifying status change is a judgment decree or order. This generally occurs when um, there has been a divorce and um, a judgment is issued by family court instructing a spouse to add a child to the employer's health plan. Um, and in that case, uh, the employer is usually presented with a QMCSO saying, add the dependent child as of X date to the father or the mother's health plan. Entitlement to Medicare or Medicaid is also another um, example of a qualifying status change uh, that would allow a change in elections mid-year. Significant costs or coverage change. So um, these allow, if a significant cost or coverage change occurs, this allows a change in uh, elections relating to major medical coverage. It does not permit a change in the election to contribute to the health FSA. Um, so this does not affect the health FSA. So um, kinds of examples of cost changes. If the employee cost of coverage increases or decreases, the employer may make a corresponding change automatically on a reasonable and consistent basis. If the employee cost of a benefit package option increases or decreases significantly, a corresponding election change may be made including commencing participation with a decrease in cost or dropping coverage or choosing another option with an increase in cost. So there has to be some consistency here. So if the cost um, uh, decreased, that would make sense that now it might be more affordable to some employees so you can allow them to um, uh, uh, elect to participate in the plan mid-year where they might not have been uh, uh, willing to do so earlier in the year. It applies whether the change is employer or employee initiated, and it applies to the decap if the provider increases its costs. So here's some examples. Alpha again has a calendar year cafeteria plan for 2021. Alpha offers employer-sponsored A, a PPO plan for self-only coverage. Employees contribute $140 a month, as well as a HMO option, which costs $100 a month. Debbie elects the HMO coverage to reduce her salary by $100 a month. Effective June 1, Alpha decreases the employee contribution for the HMO plan by, 21, by $25. Alpha in that case would make a corresponding change automatically for all employees to reflect the reduction in the premium contribution amount. Back to the original facts, effective June 1, Debbie wants to change to the PPO Plan. She just wants to make this change even though there's been no change in um, the mandated costs for coverage. In this case, the alpha could allow the change if the plan document allowed for it and if the carrier allowed for it, but it could not allow Debbie to increase her pre-tax election, which of uh, $40, an additional $40 a month because there is no qualifying status change. This is just Debbie changing her mind during the year. More examples of significant costs or coverage changes. If there is a significant curtailment of coverage under a plan that is not a loss of coverage, such as a significant increase in deductible copay of out-of-pocket limit, employee may revoke the election and choose another coverage option. If there is a significant curtailment that is a loss of coverage, for example, an HMO is no longer available where the employee resides, or they've hit a lifetime or annual limit. 
The employee may revoke the election and choose another coverage option or drop coverage if no similar benefit package is available. If there is an addition or improvement of a benefit package option, a change is permitted, even if not enrolled before. Let's say the employer previously only had an expensive PPO, mid-year adds a less expensive HMO. You can allow employees to shift over to the HMO um, or sign up for the first time to get coverage under the HMO. If there's a change in coverage under another employer plan, um, or if there is a loss of coverage under another group health plan sponsored by the government. So here's an example. Alpha has a cafeteria, calendar year cafeteria plan. For 2021, Alpha offers an employer-sponsored PPO, which Debbie elects for herself and her son. Effective June 1, Alpha adds an HMO option. Debbie wants to switch to family coverage under the HMO option. Under this circumstance, uh, HR should allow Debbie to make that change. Um, if she had requested it, Debbie would not have been allowed to change to self-only coverage because that would not be consistent with the change, with the addition of the new um, policy option or change her health FSA election. I finally wanted to mention, uh, have talk briefly about the relationship to these cafeteria plan rules to health plan terms. So these election change rules that I've been talking through apply to the cafeteria plan, but the employer has to separately consider what are the health plan rules, whether they're fully insured or self-funded. So here's an example. Um, I talked earlier about Debbie's uh, situation where in the middle of the plan year, she decided she couldn't afford the health coverage anymore and decided she just wanted to drop it. It's possible that the insurance company could say, hey, yeah, just drop it, we don't care. That's fine with us. But the problem is in that circumstance, the cafeteria plan document still doesn't allow it because of the IRS regulations. So Debbie couldn't make that change. Sometimes carriers are more generous than the cafeteria plan rules, but that doesn't mean that the cafeteria plan rules don't also apply. Sometimes carriers can be uh, bigger sticklers than under the cafeteria plan rules, and they might not allow a change um, that might otherwise be allowed under the cafeteria plan rules. Um, so make certain that your plan language and um, uh, documentation meshes up and make certain before you make promises about some of these things that the carrier is fully on board with what you're planning. Or if you've got a self-funded plan, that the stop-loss carrier is full of, fully on board with what you're planning. So Natalie, we've got our last poll for the day. Could you please launch this? And the poll is open. What do you consider the most effective way to communicate the status change rules to employees? Through the SPD, through the benefit enrollment guide, through the uh, election form, when employees request a mid-year election change, or all of the above? So um, I know what my answer is. Um, I'm gonna, I would say all of the above, but let's see what the rest of you have to say. Natalie, could you, um, I'll give you about 15 more seconds to get your answers in and then have Natalie close out the poll and share the results. So let's see what we have here. Natalie, if you could close the poll and share the results. Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> so the SPD, um, actually, 
uh, frankly, these, yes, they should be disclosed in all of the above. Um, when they request a mid-year election change, it's almost too late. Um, uh, you could explain, you obviously have to explain the rules as to why you're allowing them to do something or not do something at that point. But hopefully that's been communicated to them prior to that point in time. Okay. Compliance tips and traps. Have a written plan document. Not only is this required by IRS rules, but it is um, your guide to administering the plan. So when employees come in and say, hey, can I do this? You can look at that written plan document and say, nope, sorry, you can't, or yes, you can. So have a written plan document, update it as necessary. Um, if you're using form documents provided by a TPA or another service, that's fine. But remember that one size fits all. So when they hand it to you, don't necessarily just sign it and put it in your uh, hard drive and forget about it. Check it over. Make certain that it is consistent with your plan design, with what you intended, um, and with what works best uh, for your company. Make sure that language fits your needs. And also, uh, coordinate with other essential benefit plan materials, such as the ERISA wrap documents, as well as employee handbook language. Employee elections. Elections must be made before the start of the plan year and uh, communicate impact of plan choices. Administering the, administer the plan according to terms. Um, it can be difficult when Debbie comes into your office, if you're in HR or if you're the broker and says mid-year, you know, I really can't afford this. I really need to drop my health coverage. It can be very difficult having that conversation and say, I'm sorry, the rules just won't permit it. But you are obligated to administer the plan according to the plan terms. I will also add that if you're talking about the health FSA or the major medical plan that you want to make changes on, that's, those plans are also subject to ERISA, and ERISA has fiduciary rules, which also mandate that you administer the plan according to plan terms and not make exceptions for employees that are not supported by the plan documentation or the law. And in all cases, document what you're doing. So I created a little quiz. Um, I'm going to answer all of these questions. These are not poll questions. But just to kind of uh, reiterate some of the points that I've made a couple of times throughout the program. So who audits the cafeteria plan? The Internal Revenue Service. So um, the IRS is the entity that will come knocking if they feel that there's an issue with your cafeteria plan. They will ask to see your documentation and uh, um, will make sure you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. Is the cafeteria plan document the same as the ERISA wrap document? No, it isn't. The cafeteria plan document is mandated by Section 125 of the Internal Revenue Code and IRS regulations. The ERISA plan document is mandated by um, Department of Labor statutes and regulations. Um, so they are different documents that they are subject to different sets of rules um, and employers that have both a health plan and a cafeteria plan must have both. Is the cafeteria plan subject to ERISA? No, it is not, but some of the component benefits of the cafeteria plan, such as the major medical plan, the dental plan, the vision plan, the life plan, and the health essay are subject to ERISA. Is the cafeteria plan subject to HIPAA privacy and security rules? No, but some of the component benefits will be such as the health FSA. Do all plan amendments to the cafeteria plan document have to be made before the start of the plan year? No, while the written plan document must be adopted prior to the start of the plan year, 
changes to the plan can be made at any time during the plan year, but the changes must take effect prospectively only. And these are the same questions. So I've provided a resource page. So this is a citation to the section of the uh, internal of the uh, US code where you'll find the information on cafeteria plans. The regulations that govern cafeteria plans, interestingly, were issued in 2007 in proposed form. They have never been issued in final form, but they are considered, uh, for all intents and purposes, binding and uh, should be followed. Um, they have separate sets of rules which have been finalized um, on um, what the permitted election changes are. They also have a separate set of rules on how to coordinate uh, your cafeteria plan when someone goes out on FMLA leave. And that has particularly um, helpful examples in it, um, as well as helpful examples on how to administer a health FSA um, when someone goes out on FMLA leave. And then I've got some additional um, references here where you might find um, some additional guidance from the IRS on cafeteria plans. There actually isn't a lot out there. Other than the regulations and the statute, the IRS has not issued a lot of guides or publications and so forth on how to operate your cafeteria plan. They did issue some FAQs for government entities regarding cafeteria plans, which provides some helpful background information. But apart from that, they haven't issued some resource documents. Um, the Department of Labor is very good about that the laws that they implement, but that has not happened with cafeteria plans. If you have any questions, uh, this is the contact information. Um, Natalie, I am going to turn it back to you now. Back to you now. Thank you so much. And yes, you actually have a couple of questions. The very first Great. one is, Great. if shareholders of S Corp are not able to participate in the cafeteria plan, and they want to buy up from base plan to richer plan, are you saying they cannot take the, those premiums out of their payroll? They are W-2 employees. If they're not part, if participating, they're not part, in participating in the cafeteria plan, plan they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not, by the way, Natalie, I can hear an echo when I talk. I'll mute myself. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so if they're not participating in the cafeteria plan, then that the mid-year election change rules don't apply to them. So um, as long as they're not paying for the benefits pre-tax, if the insurance company is okay with it and allows them to make that change mid-year, sometimes they won't allow it. But if they do allow it and your ERISA plan wrap document allows it, then they could make that change. Next, Next question. question. Next question. Does a, does 125 plans work well with nonprofit groups? Yes, um, because um, nonprofits still pay uh, payroll taxes, and so there would still be a benefit um, to both the employee and the employer uh, for setting up a cafeteria plan, even if you're a nonprofit. You may not pay um, uh, income taxes but you pay payroll taxes as a nonprofit, and that's where a lot of the benefit is for um, a nonprofit organization so an hsa should not be on the spd wrap doc is that correct that's correct an that's hsa correct. An is, HSA is uh, not a uh it's almost never it's typically not um uh, an ERISA plan because an HSA is um, a, a plan um, 
that is controlled by the participant. It's not a group health plan. So an HSA would not be included in the RAP document. Do you have a template for a basic section 125 plan? I do not have a template that I just distribute uh, for a basic section 125 plan. I can work with employers to create a section 125 plan for them, but I don't have a template that I just distribute. Do these cafeteria plan docs apply to all size groups? That's a very good question. Uh, yes, they do apply to all size groups. So whether you're an employer with one employee or two employees or uh, several thousand employees, the same set of cafeteria plan rules do apply. The plan year has to be from, I'm sorry, does the plan year have to be from January 1st to December 31st, or can it be from March 1st to February 28th or whatever month? It can be, um, it does not have to be on a calendar year basis. That is a good question. I used a calendar year basis in my examples just because it's easier as we're walking through the examples for consistency sake, um, but it does not have to be on a calendar year basis. Um, it can be as uh, the question answer is suggested, for example, from March 1 through February 28th. I generally would recommend that it correspond to um, your ERISA plan year, which is also usually your renewal uh, for your health insurance so that people are electing, for example, their health FSA choices at the same time they're making their elections as to which plan option that they want. Um, uh, so, um, it, but it, so it can't, it just has to be for 12 months, um, but it can start and stop at any time. If elections must be made before the first plan, before the first plan, before the first of the plan year, does that mean if a group started their group health plan on April 1st, 2021, the group cannot set it up as a POP plan for this month? Oh, <laughs> uh, if they haven't already done so, yes. Now they could set it up um, for a pop plan beginning May 1. And in which case the cafeteria plan would run off calendar, in which case you might have a short plan year to then make uh, of 11 months, uh, which would be a unique situation. And then for 2022, you could start up with April 1, 2022 through um, the end of March, 2023. But it just in, in that fact situation, it would mean they, if they haven't already set it up, they couldn't set up the POP plan for April, but they could do it as of, effective as of May. What is the max monthly employer contribution to FSA per employee per month and for HSA per employee per month, regardless of the employee contribution? I don't off the top of my head know um, the maximum HSA contributions. I actually have a plan limit chart, which I can circulate um, and uh, which can go out with a um, with the uh, materials. Uh, the, the reason um, I hesitate a little bit is because um, the the pandemic rules, the, the two of the pan, some of the laws that they passed in response to COVID-19 have uh, changed up some of the rules a little bit. Um, and I haven't updated my plan limit chart. So off the top of my head, I don't know the HSA limits, but I can provide those to you. Those actually have not changed. 
Um, I'm not sure there is a limit on employer contributions to the health FSA. I will reconfirm that. There is a limit on employee contributions. Can an employee get cash benefit if the employee waives the employee benefit medical insurance through Section 125? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain I know how to answer that question. I'm not sure I follow, I, I think I follow the question. Um, I, I, I'm going to have to check. I have to think about that. I'm not sure exactly what the question is getting at. I'm going to have to think about that one. Are we required to disclose to the employee that their tax withholdings will be lowered through Social Security when they enroll in a Section 125 plan? I'm not sure if you're... Um if you're required to, uh, I've never seen it put that you're required to disclose it, and I've never seen such a disclosure, but um, it, it is in fact the case, um, and it could be disclosed if you um, wanted to make that. Um, I, I have heard of employees, especially as they get closer to retirement age, uh, making different choices if they want to maximize their Social Security income. So it is something you could talk to them about. You certainly could explain that to them. What is defined as high deductible? Is it $1,000? For a high deductible health plan? Again, that has to do with the with the limits, which off the top of my head, I haven't memorized. Um, and uh, they adjust every year. I can, uh, I will provide a uh, Natalie with a copy of my plan limit chart. Are tribal entities subject to 125 rules since they are not subject to ERISA? Um, well, ERISA wouldn't be, ERISA and Section 125 are completely separate. So their status under ERISA would not affect whether or not they're subject to 125. Off the top of my head, I don't know if tribal um, uh, entities are subject to um, Section 125. Uh, or if the benefits of Section 125 can be um, taken advantage of by a tribal entity. Uh, I can make an assumption, but I won't do that. I'll check and get back to you. If the company does not like the current carrier or finds another carrier, can the cafeteria plan be revised? I'm not sure what you mean carrier or TPA there. Um, if you're going to change carriers in the middle of the year and offer a different benefit plan design, um, you know, you're going to switch from um, uh, North Insurance Company to South Insurance Company and offer, instead of offering North Insurance Company's PPO, you're going to offer South Insurance Company's HMO. If you make that change, then that would also support a mid-year election change under the plan. If you don't like your co if you don't like your TPA in the middle of the uh, can you change them in the middle of the plan year? Absolutely, that's they're a service provider, 
And depending on the terms of your contract, you can uh, of your service provider agreement, you can change your relationship and switch over to a new service provider. There might be some issues there with getting um, records transferred from um, one entity to the other, uh, especially in the middle of a plan year, uh, to make certain that they know, you know, how many uh, uh, how many expenses have been paid out for each particular employee and so forth. So there's some administrative work that needs to be done on that end, but it, you, certainly you could change a service provider at any time, assuming your service provider contract allows you to do so. Perfect. Um, it looks like that is all the questions we have for today. Um, once again, thank you everyone Great. for joining us. Um, thank you, Marilyn, for hosting this informative webinar. Um, I'm going to go ahead and send out the slides in the recording within 24 to 48 hours. Um, and of course, if you have any further questions, um, I am not the expert, but Marilyn is. And of course, you see her contact information here. Um, that being said, thank you so much, Marilyn, and thank you everyone and have a wonderful day.